Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Martin Darkley. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for being here. Sorry, I, as the minute you've started talking, all of my alarms have started going off everywhere around me, so I shall silence everything. So I don't actually have theme music, you know. That's <laughs> just the sound of iPhones in the background. We're going to do um, five, five great films. You might be surprised. Some or all was made in England. Um, and... I guess before we do that, I would I'd, I'd, I'd give the listener maybe reasons why you're on here. You 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 also host a podcast, comedy retro film podcast called I Saw It Years Ago. I saw, I saw that years ago. That's the one. Yep. Well, it's myself and my co-host, Gentleman Joe, and uh, we basically decide on a film that we haven't seen for years, hence the name, mm-hmm. uh, and then we record the first half of the show where we sit around and try and remember what it was about, whether it was any good, but. Really, it's just for us to dick about and have a laugh, like, you know, because just trying to make each other giggle. Then we stop recording, go and watch the film, then come back and record the second half and give an actual review of the film as we see it now. And it's often quite different <laughs> to how we remember it. And uh, It's such an amazing idea. It's like, it, it, it's, it's really fun, but it makes a really long show to record because <laughs> every, every show is about four hours long. There was a show, there was a podcast series called, um, oh God, Something eighties, but anyway, it was it was about he did they they did a a month by month review of of um, films released in the eighties. Oh, wow. so, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, I like that. And a lot of what they a lot of the conversation ended up being what they remember versus what they now see with yeah. twenty twenty with literally with the year twenty twenty eyes, <laughs> yeah. not just twenty twenty vision. Well, but most of our eyes because, are kind of kind of bleached and like you know do we want to take them out of our heads in twenty twenty? So. But it's 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 and it, and what's interesting is 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 that the films that I guess would have been quite benign at the time because they were just normal. Yeah, yeah. Are shocking now, like 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 your average kind of teen, your teen rom com now looks like the worst stalker story ever. Oh mate, I mean we we watched uh, the Graduate, which is you know I remember it as being an absolute classic, and for the first half it is almost perfect it is a wonderfully written wonderfully performed film 
And the second half, it turns into this horrendous kind of film where you've got essentially he's manipulating the woman by stalking her and kind of like gaslighting her. He tells his mum, she t- her mum tells her that she's been raped by, by this boy and this boy goes to see her at university to try and tell her, no, your mum's lying, I'm fine, come home with it. It, it, it turns so nasty, but it's played so nice that we were sitting there after kind of traumatised by how strange it was. <laughs> So yeah, never go back, people. Never go back. It is. It's it's like never go back and kill your heroes. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, the worst the worst thing, of course, is that we do visit films that we want to see again because we thought they were great when we were kids, and oh, some of them are awful, absolutely bloody awful. I mean, we did on our hundredth show, we did the Last Starfighter. Do you remember the Last Starfighter? Mm, I do. Yeah, yeah, the video game. Uh, <laughs> That's the one. Yeah, and he's, he plays the arcade game outside of the kind of trailer park, and it's actually an, ad, uh, an advert for whether he can become an actual starfighter, and he gets taken off to fight Zerg and the Codon Armada, or whatever it is. And uh, it's a brilliant idea. I still love the feel of it, but it just is awful, awful. And because we'd saved it for the hundredth episode, it was <laughs> such a downer. When the second half, like, oh bloody hell, that was terrible. <laughs> so yeah. We'll move into what we've come on to talk about. I'll put a link in the show notes to your uh, podcast so people can check that out at their leisure. Uh, So five great films you might be surprised to know were made in England. Um, Some more surprised than others, but that's that's part of the conversation. Uh, Just for those that haven't heard before, what we're going to do is it's five films and five minutes per film, so we don't end up doing a four-hour podcast. When uh, Pig, who is my mate's... French Bulldog barks, although that is just an iPhone bark. So when the five minutes are up, we'll stop. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to interrupt you and say, shut your mouth. (laughs) Do feel free, because I I will just run on. I mean, like, we have no limits on our show, so, like, it's uh, we just wander on ridiculously for years. (laughs) So what we will do, as as I always do, is I do them in reverse date order. I've got them lined up in reverse date order, so I'll I'll announce them, and you can start talking at them, and I'll talk with you. Um, All right. So, without further ado, clock is ticking, and we're going to go to 1966 to carry on screaming. Robert Titi! Get away from me! With all the thanks I get for regenerating you! Listen, leave me alone. I'll send you back to Egypt. I promise. First class, all expenses paid. You'll have a lovely trip. Ah! Oh! 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 did it on the show a little while ago and the thing about carry on screaming is for one thing it's it's that wonderful kind of pastiche of london really victorian london that never really existed and the kind of way people wander around but also it it's unique in there is as far as i can tell it's the only carry on film that doesn't have sydney james in it because usually he's the lead role or certainly one of the lead roles but he was struck down ill just before it started recording so you had harry h corbett came in and became the lead and it dramatically changes the way that the film is, you know. So it's it's, it's not your standard carry-on film. I mean, there's there's still the usual kind of city, kind of like quite badly dated jokes now. But there's a lot less of them because I think Harry H. Corbett's character doesn't have that kind of leeriness that Sidney James had. I mean, I still you know love the way Sidney James performed, but I think they just wrote it slightly different because he was a more beloved ar- ar- 
actor, I suppose, from you know, obviously Steptoe and Son. And um, I just think it's really good. I mean, you've got Kenneth Williams playing a mad scientist who's, uh, who ends up deep frying people and turning them into uh, kind of uh, waxwork uh, characters, I think, to, to hide the fact that he's murdering them or whatever. And then you've got a couple of Frankensteins that go around that they're brothers because they've been trying to fix them and stuff like that. And you've got Frenella Fielding, who is wonderful as this like mad kind of old vampiress but she does that wonderful line where she sits back on a chaise lounge and says do you mind if i smoke and he's like no fine and of course then she starts to emanate smoke from everywhere <laughs> but because she's got this crazy voice it's brilliant <laughs> but have you, have you seen it you must have seen it oh yes 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 many times oh yeah so what what is it what what particularly is it about what i mean you, you mentioned london there so what what is it about being made in england that makes this put on your list i suppose it's one that it, I mean, it probably won't come as much of a surprise to people this one was made in, because obviously all the carry-on films are made in. Uh, I suppose this one feels like it's it's just the most ethereal of all of them. In the uh, the the most the most English bit of it is when you've got Charles Hawtrey working as an attendant in a public lavatory downstairs, and because of the Victorian ones, they used to have the glass uh, windows at the top. Uh, where people from outside would walk past or walk across the cobbled kind of uh, glass stones that would be above. And I'd, they're so evocative of, of England because they're such a weird thing to have in a public toilet. Uh, and I don't know, I, I suppose if you're going to pick a carry-on film, toilet humour is going to be in there. And I just thought, well, I don't know. I, 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 I love that version of England that never really existed, um, but it totally fits with the story and the strangeness of it all, and I just really like the film. I guess Carry On films did did travel all around the world without ever leaving, without ever really leaving the studio, did they? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you could have done something like Carry On at their convenience, which is the classic, you know, kind of labour unions fighting against uh, the owners of stuff, and then sort of cause it's set in a toilet factory. It's like you got jokes, but I don't know. Carry On screaming, I think it surpasses all of them, probably because of Harry H. Corbett, who is fantastic in the lead role. Mm. Uh, but also just the humour is much more picking up on all those Hammer films, which of course are all English films. And so it's English comedy, an English comedy franchise that's legendary, referencing an English uh, English horror franchise, which is legendary. So you've got this wonderful crossover, which I think just makes it, again, quite a unique film. Remind me, as you've seen it more recently, and so does does the film venture to Transylvania and stuff? Does it venture no, outside? No, no, it's, it's all stuck. It's all stuck in London. Uh, it's every everything is has come here really. And again, you got all these girls. This because you got um Jim Dale is in it. I think he has to be in it. Yeah, and he's his girlfriend is he was out you know kissing her in the park, and then all of a sudden she gets carried off by this lumbering great uh, Frankenstein character, and he's trying to convince everyone that she's been taken, and then he finds a a, a, a porcelain. Uh, model of what's a mannequin of her in a, in a tailor shop and he's saying that's my girlfriend and they're all kind of going what you're talking about and it's like that's her you know they, they've put her here and and so there's a manicness and a crazy but then they start trying to examine this mannequin and they're very much like well i can't look in there because that's you know it's like it's a mannequin you can look it's no no i can't do it it's just it's just there's a lot of politeness and silliness that comes in with it which i think makes it charming where Quite a lot of the carry-on films are just a bit cringeworthy these days. I think this one just about survives to 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 be something you could watch and not worry about. You know? I guess as well because it's it's lampooning the the Hammer House tradition more than more than the horror genre. Yeah, oh, very much so. Yeah, I mean you've got. As I say, you've got Frenella Fielding playing a kind of vampiress. It's like Monsters in some ways, or, or or the Adams Family kind of thing. And you've got Kenneth Williams is the mad scientist who's like Doctor Frankenstein type thing. Um, but really, as you say, it's it, it's the homage to Hammer 
and and the love of it as well because they really play with the ideas it's not they're not like sometimes parody can be quite dismissive of something oh, oh. <laughs> but uh yeah there you go there you go so the first the first the first uh, arrow's been slung my word yeah good so uh moving swiftly along jumping 10 years to 1976 for bugsy malone Whistling fizzy. Makes me edgy. Yes, boss. Pour me double on the rocks. Here, boss. What's so funny, Buster? You find me amusing? No, boss. I'm sorry. I wasn't smiling at you. Honest, I wasn't. Find my suit funny or something? No, boss. It was your flower. Oh, yeah. It is kind of droopy, ain't it? Yeah, a little boss. <laughs> In fact, it's very droopy. <laughs> very droopy, boss. <laughs> Hold it a minute, will you? <laughs> you need some water. <laughs> Don't ever let me see you laughing at me again, you hear? I'll so ram this man right down your throat. I'm Fat Sam. Don't ever forget that. Number one man, top dog, Mr. Big. Always have been, always will be. Now get out of here. Now, this, uh, this was an Alan Parker film, obviously English chap himself, uh, and it was shot in Pinewood as well even though it looks like it's on the streets of new york and all that kind of stuff during the during the 30s um i saw this film i must have been about 10 or 12 or something when i first saw it and uh, i mean for a start it it provoked a lifelong love of jodie foster like you know, because she is absolutely incredible in this film i mean i think it's the same year she did taxi driver so i mean so it's like she was already an accomplished actress when she's about 14 years old, which is insane in itself. But, um, but the feel of it is it's, the, it's just that wonderful idea of having a gangster movie like The Godfather uh, with the same kind of menace at times as well as The Godfather. Uh, Without doubt. Yeah, yeah. And yet you've got all played by children and the guns are splurge guns, which are just brilliant. I mean, every, every kid wanted a splurge gun when you were a kid because you thought, oh, I could just fire custard at people. Like, it would be fantastic. But... The thing is, it's, it could just easily have been, oh, look, it's kids in grown-up people's clothes. Oh, isn't that cute? But it's a proper film, and it's properly written, and it's got some great songs, uh, even though they're not performed by the children. Like they're the, actual, the actors had, who sung them had their voices sped up slightly to make them not sound like grown-ups. <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're, not, they're not the children singing them, like, so, which is why you could really tell it, though. When you sing Tallulah's song, when Jodie Foster's, my name is Tallulah, all that, um, you, you could tell from her normal speaking voice that that can't be her singing voice. And from what I remember, they just, just dialed it up a little bit, so it just changes the pitch enough to make it that it's... Uh, it's Makes a lot of sense now with the um, I could have been anything that I wanted oh, to be yeah. song. Oh, it's a great song, isn't it? Like, I mean, that's got to be the, the, the best song that ever starts in a film after a massive custard pie fight. I mean... Like, <laughs> So what do you think? What do you think the magic here is then about? Because obviously, this what we're, what we're really getting to is the is the magic of cinema to make you believe. Yeah, what you're seeing is 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 not where you are. Maybe no, exactly. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I think there's a. I'm trying to work out whether there's a Britishness in in the script because because of, of Parker. Uh, I, there there is a certain amount of satire going on, obviously, which is a you know particularly British trait. Um, but as you say, the idea that in Pinewood in the 70s, you could have this entire world populated by these children who are pretending to be adults and in these cars that were fantastic because they had, uh, they're like Flintstones cars, weren't they? But they looked like Model T Fords, but they all had pedals. They could drive around themselves. They're driving around and uh, 
it's just a magical little film because every kid who saw it wanted to be in it, obviously. Uh, it marked the start, I think, of Dexter Fletcher's career because he's in this as like a, as, as Babyface. Uh, Jodie Foster, one of her first films, not obviously her first because she was in loads of stuff, but like but one of her first real lead roles in a film. Um, and, I mean, it's odd, isn't it? Because she's obviously went on to be one of the, best actors of her generation and a very fine director as well. Um, but it's almost embarrassing watching it back now, how most of the kids act like kids. And then Jodie Foster acts like a seasoned actress. Like a, she, every line she delivers is done with just a real panache and a real, she understands what's being said. And somehow she's still a child, but she manages to not be a child, which is, uh, it's very, very tricky. Like, <laughs> I mean, I wonder what the time was between the shoots of, um, of you know, you could imagine being her being opposite Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously being <laughs> literally being a child who's forced to be an adult as a prostitute. Yeah. And then go the other way, which is you are a kid. You are a kid, but we want you to sort of parade as parade like an adult character, but without losing your child. Yes, that's, yes, good point. Because you're doing the opposite direction, aren't you? Of course, yeah. No, no. I mean, I, I mean, the fact that she could do two films like that in a year and not kind of go a bit crackers, I think, is quite impressive in itself. I was going to say, I'm sure in her memoirs, there's 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 been moments in the last forty years, but uh, but yes, uh, the business of show is unforgiving. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, I mean, it's it's marred a little bit by Scott Bayo, who's now like you know a big uh, Trump spokesman, kind of uh, being uh, the lead actor in it, like uh, which is uh, you know that that besmirches it a little bit for me these days. Like, but you think, okay, he was a kid back then. He was a good guy once, you know. Thinking of that, like with with your looking back and forwards on films with with your podcast, it's like, do do you are, are you are you comfortable separating? Art and artist. It's uh, we've had that discussion quite heavily on about several different episodes. We had one film which we watched, which was Mother Jugs and Speed, which is a film I remembered from the seventies when I was a, well. I, I remember watching it in the eighties from the seventies when I was a kid. It had Raquel Welsh, uh, another actor I've forgotten. Oh, uh, Larry Hagman, and unfortunately Bill Cosby. And then like, uh, and it wasn't that long after the court case and stuff. So he realised, oh, this is and, and Bill Cosby is actually quite good in it. <laughs> so, so we we we've, yeah we've had a few different ones. We had we watched a film the other day. We had a guest on who picked a, an Italian film, and Roman Polanski's in it. So then we had a long conversation about, as you say, how do you separate the two things themselves? Moving swiftly along to 1980, to Stanley Kubrick's most wonderful, The Shining. Little pigs, little pigs, let me come in. Not by the hair on your chinny chin chin. Then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. At that point, and he shot 2001 in Britain as well at that point. Well, he, he, was, already, he was living he already... here, so there's a good chance he had, I think, by then. Because I'm pretty sure that was the bigger one, wasn't it? Because he did uh, The Shining. Did he do Barry Lydon by then? Oh, Barry Lyndon, yes, of Lyndon, course, yes, 74. Yeah, and of course, Clockwork Orange is all set in um, around London as well, like in around parts of the UK. But that's set in, I mean, whereas The Shining, obviously, the Overlook Hotel is nowhere, nowhere near London, is no, it? No, at all. That's middle of Colorado. <laughs> where's he convinced us is, is Colorado? Well, I mean, I think they do actually go, the exteriors, I think, were in Colorado, like uh, somewhere like that, uh, where they, so there's, there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful bit of trivia, actually. Uh, the beginning of The Shining, 
you have a beautiful uh, sweeping shot that follows uh, the Torrance's car as they're driving up to the um, to the, the Overlook Hotel, and it sweeps over this majestic uh, scenery that is that is that area. Uh, now that was used in. Two other films, if I can remember rightly. Um, the end of Blade Runner, you know when they have to do the, uh, the studio force them to do the happy ending in the original theatrical release, and then they end up somehow, they're driving into the middle of a forest at the end of it because, you know, Earth is meant to be destroyed, but yet they're driving through this lovely kind of... I don't think I've ever seen that. Either. Oh, right. Well, the, the original theatrical release, uh, it, it, it's the, the problem is I love Blade Runner, and I've seen that release hundreds of times because that's what I videoed off the telly when I was a kid, and I watched it over and over again. And uh, after the bit where he's told by the other chap, you know, uh, it's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does and all that? And uh, he realizes that he can stay with uh, the android, but she's got a limited lifespan. Who knows? Um, but in the original theatrical release, the, the, the studio forced them to do a happier ending where they go somewhere because they thought it was too clever. No one would get it. So they have this last bit where he's driving in his car with her, with Sean Young, and they're, they're off in the middle of Colorado, basically, like driving on this big sweeping thing. But um, who was it who did it? Uh, Ridley Scott didn't want to... He was so angry they'd made him do it in the first place that he just got some... He asked Kubrick if he could borrow some of the stock footage from uh, the start of The Shining and use it at the end of Blade Runner. So that's in the original one. So like, but the, only bit, the only thing Kubrick said was you can't have anything that's in The Shining be in it. So you have to have the offcuts kind of stuff, which was absolutely fine. Because in, in The Shining... I mean, I remember on Room 2, 3... Seven, is that right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Seven. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and the documentary, they, they, or, or maybe it was just a documentary about the Shining. I've seen, but they, they showed you the the, the geography of the interior, obviously the studio stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and where you're led, as it were. Oh, what do you do the track the tracking camera stuff? Yeah. Well, just just generally the geography of where you see the characters walk from room to room and corridor. And then when you look at the hotel, it's actually. It's an if you try to draw a blueprint of what they've done, it yeah. doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. It's like an Escher painting. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. People are walking into walls. There isn't a window where there's a window, all that kind of thing. And it's that. But it's it's an interesting. It's it's. I mean, Kubrick's interesting in the sense of that idea. He was adamant or fearful, whatever it was, to not want to do anything else. No, no, exactly. I mean, when we, because we did this one on the show, obviously, as, as everyone does it, because it's one of the best films ever made. But I, I didn't know this was shot. I mean, it's all shot in, in well, I did write it down, it's in Elstree. They do all the interiors of the Overlook Hotel are at Elstree. So they built essentially a hotel you know kind of within you know i mean yeah so that huge amazing uh drawing room whatever it's called the main lobby area where he does all the sam does all his writing sorry jack does all his writing uh it's all a construction and it's i mean it looks beautiful it's such a great set but they they, they did have problems though because it's got massive windows so they had to have huge stage lighting to shine through the windows to make it look like it was outside and on a, on one occasion at least some of the furniture caught fire because the uh, the the light was so hot to make the brightness enough to make it a window of that size <laughs> it started burning the set down <laughs> So you can just imagine you can just imagine what Jack Nicholas and uh, Shelley Duvall now what are their stress they're so hot <laughs> but but the interesting thing with that example is that the um I've I've done a few interviews recently where because of the nature of European and international co-production yeah this 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 flitting between uh, well think of what you talked with the blade Runner, you know like suddenly going from there to driving in Colorado is that there's a film recently called Vivarium which was an Irish movie and in and in that and that's set on like a housing estate, which is like this bonkers housing estate. And the um, whenever they're outside the house, i.e., on the front ga- front lawn, 
they're in Belgium on a soundstage. And when they go inside, they're back in Ireland, which is where the filmmaker's from, shooting. So, so literally, whenever they... Uh, sorry, we, uh, we, we overran there with the other... But that's... But, yeah, it's just... It's interesting. And, I, and I'm working with a producer who, who worked on Dog Soldiers, which obviously famously all set up in the, in the Scottish Highlands, in the, in the woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that the one with Sean Pertwee in it, or am I getting that one Sean right? Pertwee, yeah. yeah. Hmm. All shot in Liechtenstein. Oh, was it? Luxembourg, sorry. Really? Luxembourg. Yeah, they could not the Scottish Highlands at all. No. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. What we're going to talk about next is probably, for me, was like a really, it was really interesting as, as to discover the elements of this film, because clearly a lot of it is shot in Britain, because it's the bloody River Thames and things like that. But it's the bits that, it's the bits that pretend to be somewhere else that are um, that are, are are interesting from a film production point of view, and I'm talking I'm, I'm talking around uh, 2012 Skyfall. You're still clinging to your faith in that old woman. When all she does is lie to you, she never lied to me. No, no. What did you score on your marksmanship evaluation? Seventy. <laughs> Forty. A film I got very excited about when I saw it. I wrote a very excited review on um, for the Quietus about it. That's right. I read that one. Yeah, it was good. So I, 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 I think we should defer to you on this film, Missy, because you know far more about it than I do. Like it, because I mean, as you say, I, I didn't realise that most of those places that aren't in England are in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the the, the main one, the main one for me that that just really impresses me, is, and and it, I'm I live in East London, so I can see the building that it is from my house when I step up my door just by the nature of the way London's it's all flat in Hackney between me and Canary Wharf. And um yeah, the 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 Shanghai swimming pool scene, a really noiry in fact it kind of harks back to Blade Runner, doesn't it? You know oh, the way yeah, the yeah. lighting is and, and, and the water and everything. It kind of has that has that feel to it with the neon light and things. And then you discover it's it's in Canary Wharf, not Shanghai. <laughs> and it's the Virgin Virgin Athletic uh, Gym Club. Is it? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of, I think it's on a very, I think it's actually at the top of one Canary Wharf or something. It's a gorgeous film though, isn't it? I mean, it is. I mean, as you say, the, 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 the attention to detail that you'd never guess that was London and you'd certainly never guess it was Canary Wharf because it just looks like a different world. Almost. In a way, it's sort of filming what you need to film and not going any wider. I recently interviewed Larry Smith, who was Kubrick's DOP on on Eyes Wide Shut. Nice. Um and he and he 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 was a consultant on the Shining and Full Metal Jacket and stuff. He talked about shooting a movie that's set around Australia, Thailand, China, and the film never left they never the, the filming never left Thailand at all. <laughs> they used they used a tiny bit of stock footage, which again for establishing so they had like a stock footage shot of a big, of a well of a well known sort of roundabout in the in the middle of Shanghai, I think it is, which is a you know the the equivalent of Leicester Square or you know Piccadilly Circus. And then you go into an office and you're like, oh, I'm somewhere in Piccadilly Circus when you could be filming it in a soundstage in Berlin for all it matters. But it is it's and it's a film that goes off all around the world. Oh, it does. Yeah. And and I think that's to do with the nature of international co-productions and tax incentives and the like. Oh, yeah, yeah. But obviously Bond is very much a um, a British franchise. And, and it, I'm terrible. Skyfall's the one where we go back to the house at the end, isn't it? Yeah, all the they go Scotland. Homemade. I assume it's Scotland. It's probably like, you know, you know it's probably... You know, <laughs> they're on a Hawaiian beach somewhere. <laughs> Interesting fact about that is that that moment when he gets out of the car and he's wearing that wonderful uh, Bellstaff jacket, 
that jacket basically sold like that. You 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 couldn't. The minute that film went public, the minute that film got released properly, apparently the the, the, the that jacket you couldn't get it for love and the money. Look, I was going to say just because the, 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 I mean the writing is fantastic. I, yeah, I think it's the I, I think it's the best Bond film ever made. I think it's just because and someone say oh, it's not a Bond film, it's a Batman film, but you know it's a Bond film because you know the origin story of all, all that kind of stuff. But I think as you say, just the the, the Sam Mendes cinematography is oh, it's just. At times, there's there's that bit where he's uh, sailing into the uh, into the Shanghai place, isn't he? Like uh, on a boat or something. And it just, you know, you've got the little lanterns on the side and stuff, and it just looks absolutely astonishing. And then you've got the fight where they're with the hitman in Canary Wharf, and they've got the, the visuals all behind it, which are amazing. But when they get to the end and they go to Scotland, and as you say, he gets out of the car, and of course they use the Aston Martin perfectly because it just looks stunning. And then they you they show it to you again, and it looks stunning, and you know they're going to destroy it because he keeps showing you how pretty it is. <laughs> but as you say, when he gets to that bit of Scotland, and I, you know, I know it's not England, it's made in Britain, you know, but the whole point is when they stand there, you think like, it, it, I don't know, it, it's just... It's a change in the visual temperature of the film, but also in the way that the, the whole script goes as well. There's something about it which I think is just such a well-balanced, well-written, well-performed film. And, and, and the, the idea of actually making a Bond film where the central character is M, I think, is just it's genius. I mean, so I just... I, I mean, know. I don't know the books too well. I mean, does that play to the origin story of who he is, that whole orphan child story? I see, I, I did read the books a long time ago, and I can't quite, I can't quite remember him being... I certainly can't remember him being from Scotland. He could well have been, like, uh, but I just, I just don't really remember. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure to make any reference to it in any other films either, apart from he, you get the idea he was probably an orphan because they could, the government could then take him and use him without anyone knowing. I think, I think that's, it's almost like a trope for spies, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? absolutely. That bark was the end of number four. So number five is 2014's Ex Machina. Oh, yes. or works of art which we both know. It would form the ideal basis of a discussion. Is that okay? Caleb? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a start, going back to the bit you were talking about, the kind of verisimilitude of, like, where are you? I mean, this is all shot... Initially, you'd think it's all shot in, like... I think it's Bolivia or something. There's a Bolivian rainforest. Let me just look it up, because I don't want to get this wrong. But... All of the interiors, again, are in pine wood. 
which is wonderful because for a start, having a really, really good film made in England is like a, is a nice uh, a nice trope to kind of put back I think in. The exter- I think the house is in Norway, isn't it? It could be. I I'm, I'm just trying to look. I'm just going to pull up IMDb. So Pinewoods, England. Oh, it doesn't say where the other one is. But as you say, it definitely is. You know, the exteriors are definitely somewhere you know, very exotic looking. Because uh, it look it looks amazing outside. I mean, I, don't, I can't remember. I, can't, I mean, in the story, you're kind of you're you're believing he's going to some far flung. Yeah, because he has to get a helicopter to a private island and stuff. You know, it's all because it, it's essentially he's he got a chap who is a programmer for a software company or something, and he is going to see the person who owns the company, a kind of you know a Mark Zuckerberg type character. Yeah, and when he gets there, he doesn't know. I don't think he knows why he's going, but he knows the guy who's there, Nathan, I think is the character's name, uh, is a genius in AI or something like that, like a going go on with it. So when he arrives, it's a very ultra modern design and architect. Isn't it? Loads of big plate glass windows everywhere. Well, obviously the plate glass windows, but plate glass walls. You know, kind of to make everything look like it's outside or near inside. And he goes downstairs, and he's just shown this uh, this girl who is not a girl because she's an AI robot, but she is very close to being a girl because she's the uh, the pinnacle of AI. And uh, the idea is he wants to talk, he wants to sorry Nathan wants the man to talk to her. What's her name? Ava, Ava, uh, uh, to see if she could pass the Turing test, you know, whether you can be a computer that passes for a human. And, uh, and it's just, it's wonderfully divisive because you, by the end of the film, I won't give anything away because people haven't seen it, but the one of the film, you start to wonder who was testing who throughout the whole thing. And it is just, it's three, three four characters. Did you did you see how they promoted the film when he did the world premiere at South the Southwest? I, I, I didn't know. I, I I didn't notice much about it until it popped up. I think it was on Netflix. It popped up, and I thought, oh, that looks good. good. So how do they promote it? They they had her 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 avatar as like you know on the kind of dating sites and stuff. So she was messaging people as a as a uh, as a real person. Uh, so the whole Turing test went very meta. I can't remember exactly. I mean, I, I might be getting that slightly wrong in detail, but. Essentially, yeah, she was. She existed in the ether as as someone you could talk to, and people were, but they weren't talking to you. Going, here's a film I'm promoting. It was sort of after the fact. If you went, I guess, if you went to a certain stage in the process of communicating, it would reveal that this is part of the film. How do you think, as someone that you you said earlier, you'd seen uh, Blade Runner hundreds of times? How do you think it compared as a as a what it means to be alive, what it means to be an AI? Yeah, I mean, it's um. It's interesting because in in Blade Runner it's more about the uh, the idea of implanted memories, isn't it? Is the whole thing that, that that's why the um, that's that's what stops the replicants from going mad and killing people is by the fact they've got memories, so they think they're real. Is the is the conceit? Yeah, so anyway. they're not so not un, they're not untethered from reality. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and the so, but then of course they build in the uh, limited lifespan to so they can have certain control over people. But yeah, in in this one, I felt the uh, it was a much more modern argument about the nature of consciousness, isn't it? And the idea about what makes something real and alive. You know, if you can think, and you can think not just logically, but way beyond that, and if you can actually interact in a way, you end up with something that's alive in a, in a different perspective. And of course, we've had that with a lot with AI anyway. People, you know, I think like Stephen Hawking and various others warning that AI is a potentially horrendously dangerous thing because if something becomes clever enough, uh, to actually outsmart us, it can start doing things we don't expect. And of course, once you get into that realm, then it, I mean, obviously it's, it's been the trope of many science fiction films for years. <laughs> I listened to a podcast about um, a lie detector 
that was billed as the perfect lie detector, produced that of Manchester University. And um, the CEO of the company, when asked how, how it was made, he said, oh, it, we, 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 it's machine learning and it's taught itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, how did it do it? We don't know. <laughs> and that, that, you, you, you say that, that's exactly what he said. And, and they're selling it around the world on the basis that it is something like 80% accurate. So it's not even like it's so good, it's brilliant. It's, it's quite good. And quite fantastic, but it doesn't. Um, but it doesn't. Um, it's very white European centric in terms oh, yeah. of its data profile. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Are they all so? If you're going to and, and the and the main thing they're trying to sell it to is mm, staffless border control. Oof. that's what they want. That's what they want the lie detector for. So, so they basically want a lie, an AI lie detector that essentially goes, "Are you a baddie?" And you go, "No, I'm a goodie." <laughs> And it goes, looks in your eyes and then goes, lie, uh -uh, you can't come in. Like, that's it. Now, that's terrifying, say, because of the, as we all know, that there is ethnic profiling, uh, even at a subliminal level, in the way that computer AIs are taught, aren't they? And we've seen it. I mean, I know that I, I went to... If 90% 90, if 90 of the programmers are white... Yeah, exactly. Then, then their awareness, and, and then if you go, how many of them are male compared to female? Well, yeah, again. Then, yeah. Then they're not going to look at. Every, they're not going to consider everything, and that's not. That's not. A, that's not a criticism of them. That's a criticism of the system, and that's kind of what blew my mind. And I think that's. What, I think that's where Ex Machina. I think to be honest with you, I think we can spoil it because it is 2014. Because because what I, what I was going to ask you was, um, because I always feel like I mean Blade Runner is a bit of a, is a down, but but with Ex Machina it's a bit more, a bit more black and white in terms of the outcome. But what do, do you do? Do you think the outcome? Is an up or a down ending? Now, it's a good question because it really depends on how you view Ava, really, doesn't it? If you view her as a sentient being, uh, then the fact that she's escaping from prison is, is one interpretation of that thing. Uh, also, the fact that she's passed the Turing test because she's managed to fool the man who's testing her into believing her is the thing. That, so the whole film was that, really, isn't it? That she does pass it. And, and the fact that the once... And I love the, the kind of... then the. the yeah, you know, the, the the messaging there is like once a, once an AI can pass the Turing tests, we're done for. You know, because of course she then leaves him to die in the prison, and she goes off free. Which I so I I, I loved it in the fact that an antihero sometimes when they win. We talked about Kevin Spacey in the Usual Suspects. I mean, like Virgil Klimt becoming. Uh, Kose before our eyes is still one of my favourite moments of cinema and you think you are so respectful of that character for, for eluding the police but not only eluding them but totally misdirecting them for two hours and yourself while you watch the film you, you think like with Ava it's a very similar feeling where you realise oh wait a minute she was way ahead of the game throughout the whole film like not, not just here and there she was always manipulating everyone from the first minute that, you know, that she had the chance to so I, I, I enjoy that clever of it of the character and the fact that they managed to win over the other people but in the end it is it's quite a damning end when you think oh blimey we're building these things right now and we're soon going to be end up locked in buildings we can't get out of you know? <laughs> yeah 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 well well the idea that they walk among us which is obviously invasion invasion of the body snatchers and, and those kind of paranoid fears was always a well metaphors for the communists and stuff but 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 also the literal interpretation would be 
um, we won't know them if they look like us. Yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. What if, they look like, if, they, if they look like Donald Sutherland and they stand there shouting at you, then you know you're onto something. <laughs> but now we're saying we can build these things. They're not, they're not coming from a foreign planet. We're going to build them in a Petri dish and create synthetic tissue. Yeah, it's kind of Skynet 2020, really, isn't it? I mean, you know, mm. the idea back then was you had automated systems that would be in control. Mm. So, like, yeah, I mean, you go back to war games, obviously the Whopper and all that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, mm. people are... Uh, are too emotional when it comes to launching nuclear missiles. Like the very beginning of the film, you have two guys in a bunker. Won't turn one won't turn his key because he's got a kid at home and he doesn't want to start World War Three. And then you've got so okay, so you take people out of it and you make something which makes a cold, calculated decision based on strategy and the need to respond and all that kind of stuff. And then they realize, oh wait, that's a terrible idea because all of a sudden some kids died up in his mode while they started trying to play a game and the thing's gone mad and it's going to end the world. So I th I think there is a healthy skepticism of putting computers in charge uh, throughout most science fiction but a weird thing is i suppose after a while as you start looking at who is actually in charge at the moment and you think well actually maybe we should just give it to the computers and maybe they'd make a bit better go of it <laughs> <laughs> well look i'm going to round things up um five great films made in made in england um carry on screaming bugs malone the shining skyfall x machina uh, Martin, Martin Darkley thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast oh, it's been a joy thank you for having me on Stuart Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. <laughs> 